Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The latest National Advisory Committee on Immunization advice for those with the first jab, a Z vaccine, is that they should get the mRNA vaccine now. So uh, one of the questions we ask is, uh, as far as the vaccines are concerned, what is the impact on the population as numbers of COVID cases decline dramatically? Are we poised for the kind of reopening of society that Americans are experiencing? Are the variants a truly dangerous threat, or are they just what is and was expected? Does increased ease of transmission by COVID variants necessarily mean they are more dangerous to public health? And we want to speak to... Um, Immunity. Uh, we are very fortunate to have with us Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist at uh, Toronto General Hospital, assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and member of the Ontario Vaccination Task Force, and Dr. De Jason Kindrachuk, assistant professor of viral pathogenesis in the Department of Microbiology at the University of Manit Manitoba, a Canada Research Chair in Molecular Pathogenesis. That word scares me scares me more than the than the patho thing, uh, of emerging and re-emerging viruses. <laughs> Gentlemen, good to have you with us. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Sometimes when I look at four-syllable words before I get there, they get the little panic going in my throat because I, I, <laughs> I'm never sure if I'm going to make it. What do you, uh, let me start with you, Dr. Bogosh. What do you, uh, what do you make of the advice by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization that those with the first jab, AZ or AZ vaccine should be getting mRNA now? So I think I break it into two components. What is the actual advice? And then how is that advice communicated? The advice is, is, is reasonable, right? If you got a first dose of AZ, get a, get an mRNA vaccine. That's, it's preferred. Why is it preferred? Well, we know there's a small, but not 0% risk of those pretty dangerous blood clotting events with AZ. That risk in a second dose is about one in 300,000 to one in 600,000. So it's not zero, but it's a tiny risk. But the risk with the mRNA vaccine is negligible. It's like zero. And, and also, we also have a steady supply of the mRNA vaccine. The other reason they wanted to, people to do it is because there's emerging evidence that if you mix and match vaccines, you mount a more robust immune response. So that's why they said it's preferred. How it's communicated is a different story, right? I mean, we've heard a lot of backlash about the mode of communication. People feel shortchanged. They feel hard done by. They feel that they were sold something that wasn't accurate or wasn't true. And I mean, that's unfortunate. For people who got the AstraZeneca vaccine, congrats. You got a good vaccine. There's data from the UK demonstrating the protection, the effectiveness of a single dose of that vaccine against the very transmissible Delta variant at 71% after one dose and keeping you out of hospital, 91% for keeping you out of hospital after two doses. That's a good vaccine. So if you got AstraZeneca, congrats, you got a good vaccine. If you haven't got it and you're, you're thinking about what should I get a second dose of an mRNA vaccine, it, 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 it probably is a bit better to, to get the mRNA vaccine if you've got that option still. All right. Dr. Kendrachuk, please feel free to add to what uh, Dr. Bogarsh said about NASI, and I'll add to that. We now know that the Delta variant is very much present in this country and is considered to be a, a real threat. Uh, how do you establish the threat level of a new variant? How's that done? Uh, yeah, listen, as an emerging virus person, you know, I, I'm perpetually concerned. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, I go from high risk to higher risk. 
um, you know, we, with the variants, the, the way we have to look at this is, you know, what, what, what are we thinking about in, in terms of risk? Are we thinking of just morbidity and mortality? Are we thinking about hospitalizations? Are we thinking about transmissibility? Well, when we look at the Delta variant, we're seeing something that is, you know, upwards of 50%, maybe, you know, 50, you know even higher, uh, more transmissible than the last more transmissible variant, which was the Alpha variant. So even if we take all things being equal, we say, you know what, disease severity looks the exact same as the the alpha variant or even if it looks exact same as the the prior circulating strains now the fact that you have something that's more transmissible and is able to get out in the community much faster and much broader you know you're you're going to be yeah we'll, we'll we'll reconnect with it and then would you add uh, to that i want to just piggyback on something you said earlier dr bogosh about the mrna vaccine pfizer has become the number one choice if you will the the gold standard the perceived gold standard for vaccines should it be yeah, I mean, it, it really shouldn't. I mean, based on what we know now, I, I think it's also fair to timestamp all our conversations because data changes and things True. change. But, but you know, it's pretty clear that when we look at the clinical data and the uh, protective uh, effectiveness of Pfizer, for example, versus Moderna, they're nearly identical. You know, when we look at the side effect profile from Pfizer versus Moderna, they're nearly identical. So I would... I. I think they're pretty interchangeable. Like people are a little concerned. What if I got a, I don't, I don't want to get a Moderna. We've heard of people leaving a Moderna clinic because they weren't giving Pfizer. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, based on everything we know now, they're, they're basically interchangeable. And I, I think they're, they're both fantastic. And again, I know I sound like a broken record, but for people who got AstraZeneca, you still got a good vaccine. Like that really protects you against COVID-19, including that transmissible Delta variant that Dr. Kinderchuk was talking about just a minute ago. Like the, the data stacks up. So, yeah, the mRNA vaccines are, are certainly have the edge, but the but AstraZeneca is still a good a good shot. You know, quite frankly, it's going to be there's only hundreds of millions of people that have received this globally. There's so many people that have got this. It's really going to help transform the global pandemic. Yeah, we're still trying to contact uh, Dr. Kendra Chuck, so I'll, I'll continue with you, Dr. Bogosh, and thank you for doing this again. Appreciate it. Uh, I'll, let me ask you the question that I asked Dr. Kendra Chuck: How do you establish the threat level of a new variant? Basically, you look at the two things that Dr. Kinderchuk was talking about. Is it more transmissible? Is it more deadly? Does it evade vaccination? And does it evade diagnostic tests? Those are the four key things that we're looking for. And to date, the vaccines that we have available don't evade diagnostics. The conventional diagnostics work. They are more transmissible. Yep, the Delta variant certainly is more transmissible. It's unclear if it causes more significant illness, but there is some data pointing in that direction, and it doesn't evade our diagnostic test. We can, we can still diagnose it. But those are the four key points we look for. And uh, to date, you know, we, 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 you know, we're learning more about it, but uh, it, it's certainly just the fact that it's more transmissible stuff because it will find unvaccinated people. It will find undervaccinated communities. You give it time. It will find you. Like, there's enough of this out there. Cases going down. There's enough of it out there that it will eventually find people that are unvaccinated and, and they'll get sick. Are we learning sufficiently more about the COVID virus and uh, its variants that we've experienced so far, sufficiently so that science can perhaps get ahead of likely or possible variants which will or may appear? Yeah, we are. Certainly we are. This is probably the most studied virus in human history, and we've only known about it for just close to not even two years. Uh, it's incredible what you can do when you truly have an infinite 
amount of resources and funding dedicated to this, right? Like the money is no object. Remember Operation Warp Speed. It's basically like, guys, make a vaccine. Here's, here's the keys to the bank. Uh, so you can do some pretty incredible things when, uh, with science when, when funding is not, a, is not an issue. And yeah, I think we will stay ahead of this. I, re- I really do. Um, you know, you can kind of predict what mutations are going to arise. You can build better and smarter vaccines. You can build early detection systems. You can have better global coordination and communication efforts. Like if, if we want to, if you throw enough money at this problem, and you you spend it wisely, the problem will go away. Just before we go to the calls, we're watching American society and how quickly Americans appear to have returned to a normal or close to pre-pandemic lifestyle thanks to the efficacy of the vaccines. Uh, Do you foresee, uh, Dr. Bogosh, you said we should timestamp this. You're right. Is there any projection that you both might have where, which suggests we might be reaching where the Americans are now at what time we might accomplish that? Dr. Kendrachuk, what do you think? Yeah, you know what, I, I, I'm actually really optimistic, and, and I wasn't optimistic at all at the start of 2021. You know, the, the announcement of the CFL season the other day, I, I think, kind of galvanized that for me. I think we're moving in the right direction. Second doses are, are certainly increasing. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get there. And, and listen, summer is on our side. That certainly is going to help reduce transmission. The Delta variant's thrown a, you know, a bit of a ripple at us. But I think, to be fair, listen, if we concentrate and get first doses out to those communities where we haven't had good uptake, I think we're in really good shape. Okay. Let's put Greg on from Lucan in, in Ontario. Very interesting question. Greg, please ask your question of the guests. Yeah, hi, Roy, and uh, hello, doctors. Uh, my question is, I have a very rare autoimmune disorder that I actually landed up getting after a major adverse reaction to a medication that was given to me. And I've been researching, I'm trying to find out if it's safe for someone like myself uh, to take this without any consequences because, uh, like, I, I lived through, well, I almost took my life, my, and I, I'm really, really, you know, kind of, you know, a little hesitant to take this because I don't want to have that same experience again because I'm not quite sure if I'd be able to pull through All it. All right, let's find out. Uh, Dr. Bogosh? In general, with things like this, the details matter and the nuance matters, and it's usually a good idea to sit down not just with your healthcare provider, but sometimes with an allergy and immunology specialist, just to talk about exactly what your reaction was and if it's a risk with the vaccines. I mean, obviously, speaking at a high level, there's very few people that have allergic reactions to these vaccines. There can, you know, they just very few. It's all publicly available data. They can, you can see exactly what's in these vaccines, um, and and there's very few ingredients that are allergenic. So, chat with your healthcare provider. If, if they can't answer the question, get a referral to an allergist and you can sort this out pretty quickly. All right, Greg, I appreciate your call. And Dr. Kendrachuk, there's no need for anyone to have a uh, default point of view that this just isn't going to work for me because I have this condition. No, and, you know, and I think that's one of the things that we have to consider is, is with these vaccines, listen, we, we know that, that the tail tape is they came out in, in around 12 months. So, so there have been questions about, well, what is the long-term you know, effectiveness of, of these vaccines. I would hearken to say that, listen, there's been more scrutiny on these vaccines than any other vaccines in history. So the oversight that we're seeing is is absolutely immaculate. And certainly when we've heard of rare events or, or side effects, 
those have been reported immediately. So to me, I look back at that and say, listen, we're, we're in, again, we're in very good shape. We don't know necessarily everything. But at the same time, the amount of data that's come in ha- has really given people, I think, a lot of comfortability, and certainly a lot of healthcare professionals, a lot of comfortability with where the vaccines are for, you know, really for, for different age groups and, and all different comorbidities. Okay. Trent is in Calgary. Interesting question. Uh, Trent, thanks for the call. Go ahead with your question, please. Hi, Roy. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, one of the doctors might have an answer for this. I just have a, a bit of a concern. I have uh, two young boys, an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old. 18-year-old previously had COVID, uh, asymptomatic, continued to find the function just fine, no, no uh, consequences since then. Um, I do have some concerns about vaccinating him, uh, first of all, because he's had COVID and I'm assuming would have a reasonable amount of natural immunity. Uh, and then on the other side of the coin, my son, who's never had COVID before, you know, my concern would be as much as these are, you know, relatively sound vaccines, and I certainly have been vaccinated myself, we don't know what these side effects are in a year or two or three, no matter how much we continue to convince everyone they're safe. We don't know. So what would be their advice on uh, those two, one, one previously infected uh, 18-year-old and one 16-year-old uh, as far as vaccinating? My- Dr. Kendrachuk, what would you say to that? Yeah, there's a couple things, right? I mean, one of the things that, that we have to go back to is when we looked at side effects, and certainly with side effects with vaccines, Normally, those have been seen fairly quickly after vaccination. We don't tend to see a lot of, you know, kind of long-term side effects that, that linger or build up with, with vaccines. So to me, that again, that's one of the reasons why I'm a big proponent of, of vaccines for youth. We, we still know that they're certainly a vector for transmission. For, for kids that have been previously infected, you know, this is one of the issues we get into where we can't necessarily say everybody has the same immunity post-recovery. But when we get, you know, we look at vaccination, we know that the vast majority of people across age groups have really relatively high amount of immunity and good antibody development and, and good T-cell responses. So that's, uh, it's a little bit more sustained. And I think I look at that and say, listen, if we have people that, that are previously infected, we want to see them get vaccinated because we know that they're going to get a robust immune response to that vaccine. And they're going to get a sustained immune, uh, a sustained level of immune protection that that has been validated based on you know now hundreds of thousands of people in the general public that have been vaccinated. Trent, okay. So, so no, no concerns with regards to some of the things we're hearing with regards to myocarditis and things like that. Yeah. Again, yeah. Considering considering the fact that my son will have immunity, and I realize there's debate about how long immunity lasts, but we've got good data that shows long-term immunity from SARS-CoV-1 and so on. So the fact that he's, A, low risk for having any severe outcomes from COVID in the first place, B, he's had an immune response, so he has an immunity now, and C, we don't know quite about the risks of myocarditis. I realize it's rare. I understand that. It's more, what what is the upside? What's the benefit for my... All right. Trent, I appreciate your call. Go ahead, Dr. Kinderchuk. Let, I'll let Isaac uh, handle this one. All right. He certainly has yeah, some, so some thoughts. Isaac here. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, listen, we know the risk. Obviously, we don't want anyone to get COVID, but that younger cohort, we know the risk of severe outcomes is way, way lower. And if, so the, the threshold for tolerating adverse events has to be uh, very high. Like, we don't want to tolerate any adverse events. Um, and I, I share that concern about myocarditis with inflammation of the heart. And, I, you know, it's we don't I, I, it's fair to say that we don't have all the answers yet. We know it's not that common and we know that it's very it's 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 predominantly but not exclusively in younger cohorts. It's predominantly but not exclusively in men. It's predominantly but not exclusively after the second dose. Um, I and, and we are going to learn a lot more about this in a week. 
as there's two big meetings that are discussing all the current data available, mostly from the United States and Israel. Right. That's why, for example, in Ontario, we're not offering second doses yet to the young cohort. That's going to be later on in July after we know more about this. Okay. We might need to delay it or not. So good to know. Very good to know. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.